Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to this Friday edition of Political Rewind. I'm Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, filling in for Bill Nygut. It's been yet another jam-packed political week in Georgia and across the country. We've seen more fallout from the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, a new twist in the Herschel Walker debate saga, and a slew of primary elections around the country. Here to unpack it all with me is a great panel, starting with my colleague Maya Prabhu, a government reporter in the AJC, who definitely wins the Best Effort Award this morning because she's calling in all the way from Las Vegas, where it is 6.03 in the morning. (laughs) Thank you so much for being here, Maya. I really appreciate it. Of course, of course. A very early good morning to all of y'all. And you're uh, in Vegas for the National Association of Black Journalists Conference. Do I have that right? Yes. We are in full swing. It's the National Association of Black Journalists uh, combined with the National Association of Hispanic Journalists here for our joint convention, gathering for the first time in three years. Oh, my goodness. Well, I hope you guys are having a great time. We also have today Chuck Williams from WRBL-TV in Columbus, Georgia. Chuck, I messed up the numbers in our billboard, or sorry, the letters. I am so sorry. Uh, It's been an early morning for me, but I so appreciate you being here. Hey, sometimes I have to figure out where I am too. I look really, I look forward to this discussion. I think you've lined up some great, great conversation, great topics tomorrow. Uh, me too. And heading to the the coast of Georgia, we have Margaret Coker, who's the editor in chief of the Current, a great investigative news site based in Savannah. Thanks so much for being here, Margaret. Yeah, it's a sultry summer so far, but um, we are also part of the the statewide political conversation about the Warnock-Walker debate. But we're also gearing up for next week because Greg and Travis McMichael, as well as Roddy Bryan, will finally be sentenced for their hate crimes convictions. And that's exactly why I'm so excited to talk to you today, Margaret. And last but not least on the panel, we have Stephen Fowler, a political reporter for GPB. And Stephen, of course, has made a name for himself as an expert on voting and elections issues. But we were chatting a little bit before the show, and you also have stories in the work on the economy, on the Fulton County Grand Jury, on the Georgia Guidestones. Uh, What aren't you writing about, Stephen? Uh, Boring things. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for being here. Let's dive in on abortion since we have Maya here, who who truly is the AJC's expert on this stuff. She's been covering it for years when I think a lot of folks in Georgia weren't paying a ton of attention or when people thought, OK, we're debating this heartbeat bill, but Roe versus Wade is the law of the land. This has no chance of being implemented. And now look at where we are today. Um, Georgia is not the only state in the country with a six-week abortion ban, but what makes ours so unique is language providing personhood status to embryos. And obviously this has vast implications for things like tax policy, population counts, even court orders. And Maya, you recently wrote a great piece in the AJC about how state agencies haven't had a ton of guidelines about what to do with this personhood language. So walk us through that and why they didn't have a ton of guidance going in. Why they didn't have a ton of guidance, I I honestly don't have the answer to that question. You know, I think, um, you know, as I said in that piece, 
anyone who was paying attention to the debate on the the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization case that, you know, did this undoing of Roe v. Wade back in December, um, anyone who was paying attention could see the writing on the wall that, you know, the Supreme Court was most likely going to overturn Roe versus Wade, which meant that Georgia's law would most likely go into effect. And so one would think that as far back as January, um, Georgia agencies would start putting together plans for how they would implement these personhood provisions. I think that they thought that person that, you know, in Georgia, our, you know, ban, you know, the fetal cardiac activity ban would go into effect, but maybe the court might not allow personhood to take effect. Um, it did. So now folks are kind of left scrambling. At least that's how it seemed to me when I'm making calls the day after the um, the decision here in Georgia to allow our law to go into effect. Um, I'm making calls to agencies and, and no one is able to tell me what their guidance is going to be. We've seen, you know, some trickles of, of things now that we're, what, are we two weeks? I don't know what time is. I think we're two weeks out. Um, and uh, we're seeing some trickles of evidence that, that things are getting together. But, um, you know, I, I remember I contacted the governor's office and said, you know, what guidance has the governor given to agencies? And the response was agencies pay attention to legislation and they're preparing. And I was like, okay, that's not what I asked you, but helpful. Sure. So, I, you know, We'll see. We still have some more things that need to be ironed out. My favorite, as always, is the HOV lane. We've not heard from uh, Public Safety, Department of Public Safety, about how that's going to be handled. Um, so we'll see. I guess we'll get the information as they decide to dole it out. And Maya, of course, is talking about this this concept that if a woman is pregnant, can she drive in the HOV lane? Because if you're counting, you know, the the embryo or the unborn child as as kind of a, a person in Georgia law, are they able to do that? And that's playing out in a lawsuit in Texas right now. Stephen, you closely followed the legislature and were around in 2019 as this was being debated. Um, and if I remember this right, it felt like the personhood stuff kind of took a, a backseat to the, the six-week language. Uh, maybe I'm misremembering, but but do you remember how lawmakers were discussing this particular personhood issue in the legislature and what we've kind of heard since then? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, when you think about abortion and talk about the abortion rights debate, the actual timeline of when it's allowed and when it's not allowed is what sticks out in people's minds and what lawmakers discuss the most. But kind of humming along in the background, like Maya alluded to and is reported on, was this personhood concept because at the time, Roe versus Wade was the law of the land. And if lawmakers passed a law that ch changed the uh, weeks to conflict with that, it was obviously going to be blocked. But Georgia, the personhood language was put in there because lawmakers and advocates at the time thought that personhood would be the legal issue that would get it in front of the Supreme Court and that the Supreme Court would decide to end Roe versus Wade, not on a week-by-week -week basis, but by looking at the concept of personhood. And while um, getting rid of the federal abortion rights protection, they would also enshrine the concept of fetal personhood in their decision. So that was kind of a big thing that was going on in the legislature in the background, was this concept of fetal personhood, even though in the floor debates, in the protests, and people showing up to hearings and things like that, that wasn't necessarily always the top of mind. And then just going back right quick to the, you know, uh, the slow rollout or the non-existent rollout, 
you know, when the legislature writes laws and when the governor signs them, they don't usually take effect immediately because there's things that have to change or be updated. And so you'll have effective dates on the bill. And so, you know, even with the abortion ban, there was an effective date that wasn't uh, immediately after the governor signed it to give state agencies and the governor's office and the general public time to adjust to whatever the new law changes. So to me, it's interesting that it was, there's all this time and uh, there's not really much of a good idea of what this fetal personhood thing looks like. And that's also because a lot of times when lawmakers pass laws, they don't really think about the unintended consequences of what those law changes do, um, if they even understand what the law does at all. Yeah, Margaret, I want to bring you in on the conversation. You know, it's one thing to kind of debate a concept on the floor of the Georgia House or Senate. It's quite another when you have to send it over to these state agencies that are tasked with drafting regulations. These are bureaucrats. They're not necessarily designed to kind of tackle big ethical and moral questions like this. And on Monday, we saw the Georgia Department of Revenue release guidance that said anyone expecting a child as of July 20th through the end of the year can claim in their 2022 tax filings a $3,000 deduction per embryo or fetus. Right. I would add um, to your description there, Tamar, that uh, a lot of our public servants actually aren't scientists either. And figuring out the science behind all of this is incredibly important. It's not an ancillary part of this debate. And and so for um, the, the talking points on a political campaign trail uh, or a re-election campaign, the idea of women's autonomy has to be also understood in the science of it all. If anyone has had the misfortune of a miscarriage, I mean, we all know that there are certain things that you can control while you're pregnant and there's certain things that you can't. And the idea that a fetus can, can be spontaneously or scientifically or medically aborted that has nothing to do with procedure, has nothing to do with the choice of, of a woman. How many friends do I have? How many relatives do I have who have lost children, lost fetuses, lost embryos, whatever language you want to use in that context? And it's through no fault of their own, and their doctors tell them it's through no fault of their own. So how are state agencies supposed to get through that? Even if you have the best intentions and want to start a family alone or with your partner or with your husband, how are you supposed to deal with all of these things when you as an individual don't know the best science and your legislators also don't know the best science? Chuck, I'd like for you to weigh in on this as well and all the sort of gray areas. We talk about the black and white of a government regulation, but life has so many gray areas. So this is, I mean, there's so many, as Stephen said, unintended consequences. You know, and you're talking about miscarriages. What do you do if you go to your first OBGYN appointment and they say that you're carrying twins and all of a sudden three months later, you're not because of a van what they call a vanishing twin, the vanishing twin where one embryo sort of takes over. And you, could you have claimed two deductions? I mean, it's just, it, there's so much here that's unknown. There's so many things that where limits are going to be pushed, where people are going, I mean, people try to get as much as they can in tax when they're doing their taxes. Can you imagine being an accountant trying to help people navigate this in six months when people start doing their 2022 taxes? Because there's just so much here that 
is so unclear in gray areas. Maya, in your great reporting, you've mentioned all sorts of situations that could come up that make things really complicated. Uh, you mentioned the citizenship rights of an embryo conceived in America if the parents are undocumented immigrants. We've talked about the census and, and kind of what happens with that. Pregnant women potentially getting alimony and kind of court fights like this. You spoke recently with Ed Setzler, the bill's author, and, and talk to me about how he's looking at that and how supporters of this law are talking about those gray areas of life. I think, you know, supporters of this law don't don't think of it as a gray area. You know, they say <clears throat> at conception that embryo is a person and it should have all of the rights guaranteed to, that you and I have. Um, you know, uh, Representative Setzler has, um, you know, strong beliefs that, and that he, that he says are backed up by science. You know, he's the chairman of science technology uh, committee in the House. You know, he says that are backed up by science that, that proves that, you know, once fetal cardiac activity is detected, you know, that that embryo should be its own person. And so it's just really, you know, interesting to see how all of the ways in which this can play out. And, you know, to go back to something that both Margaret and, and Chuck were saying, um, when we think about uh, people who have fertility issues, right? How many, I don't know how many friends have had multiple uh, miscarriages in a year. Are people to claim each one of those pregnancies on their taxes as a dependent? You know, it's just, there, there's so many questions, you know, that's why in the article I wrote from Monday, I said they, they, they rolled out some guidance, right? They told you what line you could file your $3,000 deduction on and said that, um, you like any other uh, like any other claim made on your taxes, you may have to provide that. You know, you may have to provide documentation if asked. Right. So it's like there's a gray area in the language that was rolled out from the um, from the Department of Revenue, but I'm not sure how much farther they've gone with those things. So I, I'm interested to to wait and see what further guidance we get from them. Stephen, there's implications here in terms of government budgets and spending as well. A $3,000 tax deduction per embryo, that's $3,000 that the state is losing. That's less money for priorities, roads, schools, anything else. Um, do you Have you heard much chatter about that and the implications there? Well, yeah. I mean, usually, I mean, just like your personal budget, state budgets based on how much money it thinks is coming in, and how much money it has to spend going out. But it's not like you can predict, okay, there are going to be 50,000 births in Georgia this year and 50,000 births in Georgia next year. And while we're talking a relatively small amount compared to the you know tens of billions of dollars that the Georgia state government spends every year and brings in every year, it still is something because Georgia runs a relatively lean state government compared to its size and compared to uh, other states that have spending. And so, you know, every dollar counts. And so having that variable in there, especially with there not necessarily being, like Maya said, concrete guidance about things, it could end up having some slight uh, fringe impact on our budget. And the other thing, too, is, you know, with when we think about laws in a lot of ways, it's concrete. You know, when there is a stop sign, you must stop. 
Um, you know, when you you can only register to vote when you're 18 or older and you meet these requirements and things. But with this abortion law, especially with the fetal personhood, there is a lot of that gray area in there that uh, oftentimes leaves a patchwork of responses, probably even within different state agencies, because there's not necessarily clear specifications in the law of how every state agency interacts with this new abortion uh, restriction and the new fetal personhood language. And so then it's left to each and every state agency, even if there's top-down guidance from the governor's office, that it's going to have to implement this in a different way so you could end up having uneven enforcement and uneven access, even at the state level. Maya? You know, something that you know, my boss and I, James Salzer, were talking about, you know, he is the, the budget and numbers guy. Um, back in 2019, when I wrote, like, okay, the, so personhood be, could become a thing, what's going to happen that, what's going to happen, you know, we contacted um, the folks at the Legislative Research Office to see, like, have you guys done a fiscal note on this? You know, laws that affect tax code are supposed to have fiscal notes. And they said, oh, well, you know, this bill was introduced so late in the session. It was introduced very close to crossover. It's not required for us to do a fiscal note. Three years later, they still have not done a fiscal note. You know, I wrote this story on Monday. James like, is there a fiscal note on this? And I'm like, no. So we have no idea what the financial impact of it will really be, because not only do we have to consider all of the births that have happened, we have to consider, you know, with a there will be fewer, much fewer abortions. 35,000 abortions happened last year. Um, you know, so that, then we have to think, figure that in, and then we have to figure in all of the miscarriages that aren't, that aren't accounted for. And so it's just this number could be a lot bigger than we think it is, but we really have no idea at all. And remember, the state, unlike Congress, they have to balance their budget. So it's one thing if the governor has a year like this year when there was a giant surplus or, or money to play with because of COVID. Uh, but it's it's going to be quite another thing in a, in a bad budget year. Margaret? Yeah, I would add to that that, you know, we're not just talking about one person involved in, in these great areas. We're talking about two. We're also talking about the mothers. And, you know, there are study after studies that show that a woman's um, economic purchasing power and earning power also declines when she does not have the autonomy to choose when to start a family or to give birth to a child. And when you're going through any sort of um, fiscal accounting for these gray areas, we also have to consider in some way, shape or form the metrics about women in Georgia losing money because they have to start a family due to this new law when they when they weren't trying to or, or wanting to. You, you have to take off work and paid parental leave is also not mandatory in Georgia. Uh, so this gets into an incredibly deep economic debate that has goes well beyond the political headlines that people use during re-election campaigns. I want to get back to the concept of what the legislature might do when they reconvene in January. But before we do that, Chuck, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about how the abortion debate is playing out in Columbus. I know you recently spoke with Randy Robinson, Robertson, my apologies, a Republican state senator who supported the abortion bill. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that conversation and what you've been hearing from local law enforcement agencies in terms of how they might handle investigations into possible abortions. Yeah. Um, the Columbus Ledger Inquirer reported, uh, talking to our district attorney, Stacey Jackson, that he was going to handle it in a case-by-case basis. And I have not had a chance to talk to Stacey uh, directly about that, but that was what the local newspaper here reported. And 
I'm probably going to do something on that in the next week or so. But my conversation with Senator Robertson, and I've known Randy for a long time. Randy fully supports the heartbeat bill as it is as it is written. And you know, and he talked about uh, family members that had had uh, miscarriages and stuff like that in that conversation. You know, my, my question, and, and I think it's going to play back to what you're about to turn turn this back to tomorrow is what does the General Assembly do? You know there are going to be some hardcore Republicans that abort that support a total ban on abortion that are going to try to go ahead and push the bill all the way all the way total ban. There will probably be a split in the Republican Party on that because there are people who support it as it's written, as it as it passed, as it has become law. Will they go in and try to clean up the personhood deal in legislation? Could they have a Democratic governor over a Republican legislature? I mean, who knows what this could look like in, in a matter of uh, five, six months. But, you know, Randy was pretty clear. He supports the heartbeat bill. And I think as, as it was written and he supports the law that has gone into effect, Stephen, let's talk about what might be to come from the the legislature. As Chuck mentioned, there are many Republicans who want to see a stricter ban on abortion. Uh, But some of the more plugged in Republicans, at least I've spoken to at the state capitol, acknowledge that the votes aren't there yet. The heartbeat law passed so narrowly back in 2019. What are you expecting from lawmakers in in January in terms of abortion legislation, but also social safety net, you know, uh, making it easier and better for moms and families in Georgia? Yeah, I mean, I do think, like Chuck says, a lot of it will depend on who sits in the governor's mansion come January 2023 and the makeup of the legislature. You know, with redistricting that happened, there are, especially in the House, uh, the Republicans still have the majority in both chambers, but especially in the House, the margin is a little bit narrower so that probably something like the heartbeat bill would not be as easy to pass again because you know, it passed, like you said, by one vote. And in theory, there should be more Democrats in the state house uh, when the legislature reconvenes in January. So it's going to be a lot harder to pass uh, legislation that's farther on the right uh, and something like that, where there's a lot of different opinions. But one of the things that I have heard people talk about, Republican lawmakers and activists and such, is more of a focus on the social safety net and things where there might be bipartisan agreement that Georgia has terrible rankings for a lot of metrics around maternal mortality and maternal health and childhood poverty and things like that. And so uh, there's a really good opportunity here, some Republicans think, to walk the walk and say, okay, if we really are the party that is pro-life and values the mother and the child and everything, let's do things to strengthen that, especially in rural Georgia, to make sure that, you know, people that are having children, that we're requiring them basically to have children because of this abortion restriction, that we do so to help them grow into uh, healthy, happy families. And so I would expect to see some of that. But again, some of it depends on who's in the governor's mansion and what the margins in the state legislature are like. 
Maya, we haven't heard a ton from House Speaker, House Speaker David Ralston on this issue, and we don't know who's going to be leading the state Senate as as lieutenant governor come November. Of course, of course, Burt Jones has mentioned he wants to see a stricter ban. Charlie Bailey, a Democrat, I'm very much assuming he does not want that. What are your expectations for January? Oh, yeah, that's a that's a good question. You know, we've had, um, you know, kind of discussions and speculations around what types of legislation can be filed and what what is it there are 236 lawmakers anybody can file legislation so you know we will probably see bills filed that will be an all-out ban um we'll probably we might even see bills filed from democrats saying you know what let's put this on the ballot in in november since you guys uh since you guys think that this is what it is. You think you think that Georgians support you and, and think that abortion should be outlawed. Let's um let's put this on the ballot. And so it'll be interesting to see what what legislation will get traction. Um I think when this bill was first introduced in twenty nineteen, people didn't think it would get traction. Um so there's really no telling. You know, we'll see a ton of bills introduced, they'll throw stuff at the wall and then we'll just have to kind of watch and see how things get played out. I've gotten so terrible at predicting um what legislation will become uh you know, we'll, we'll pick up steam and, and make it across the finish line. Chuck, you want to jump in here? Yeah, I'm just going to say one word, Kansas. I mean, when you talk about putting this on the ballot, I mean, you, we saw what happened um, Tuesday in Kansas. I mean, Kansas is as ruby red as Dorothy's slippers. And, you know, for Kansas to turn around, and I don't think people were surprised the bill passed. I think people were surprised it was what for for uh fifty nine forty one wow i mean that 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 ought to put everybody on notice just what could happen across the country if you put this on the ballot all right, well, Chuck gets the last word for this segment. We are going to take a break, and we're also going to say goodbye to Maya. Thank you so much for calling in at six a m from Las Vegas. We so appreciate your expertise on abortion. You're welcome, and thank you for dismissing me early. I'm going to go back to sleep, (laughs) y'all. Stay with us. We'll be right back with more Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. We're back with more Political Rewind. I'm Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter at the AJC, filling in for Bill Nygut. Our panel today is Margaret Coker from Southeast Georgia's The Current, Chuck Williams from WRBL-TV in Columbus, and Stephen Fowler of GPB News. Let's dive right back into the discussion. Margaret, I'd like to ask you about one of the stories that's been leading your website this week. Greg McMichael, who was recently convicted along with his son and their neighbor of killing Ahmad Arbery in February 2020, is making a last-ditch effort to lessen his punishment. And as you mentioned at the beginning of his of the show, his sentencing hearing is on Monday. So catch us up with what's going on and what Greg McMichael is requesting. 
Right. For people who might not have been listening to news in 2020 or 2021 or who are new to Georgia, Greg and Travis McMichael are father and son. They, they and their neighbor, uh, Roddy Bryan, who live in Satilla Shores in Glen County, they were convicted in state court of murdering Ahmad Arbery back in February of 2020. And in addition to the state murder charges, they were also brought up on federal hate crimes charges, and they were convicted of that as well. So they've been serving their, their state sentence in the state penitentiary, and now they're going to be sentenced on Monday for the federal hate crimes. The McMichaels both have put in petitions to try and get their sentencing uh, um, guidelines to allow them to serve their time in a federal detention center instead of a Georgia state prison. And that, um, for your listeners, um, people will remember that ahead of the federal crime, a federal trial starting, there was a plea deal that was reached between the U.S. attorneys um, trying the case and those defendants to try and get them in exchange for pleading guilty to the hate crimes without a trial to also have their time served in the federal penitentiary. The judge who is presiding over the case, um, Judge Lisa Wood, she denied that original plea deal because of uh, it, it tied her hands as a judge in terms of her uh, having the right to, to sentence and, and to set her own sentencing guidelines. So I think this is a last-ditch uh, uh, attempt by the defense um, attorneys to try and help their clients out. I don't think that the likelihood of this happening on Monday is, is very high, though. And Margaret, I mean, didn't Ahmad Arbery's own mom kind of argue that that the judge should not accept this, um, you know, this uh, offer or I guess kind of what they were asking for to put him in state prison? They said it. she I believe the, the term she uses, it would be a slap in the face to what happened to her family or something along those lines. That's right. That's right. The Arbery family, both mother and father, and um, I think two of the aunts stood up in, before the trial started while the um, plea deal was was being brought up for discussion. And they both differently, um, um, you know, spoke out against this. If everyone remembers, it took around 70 days between the time that um, Arbery was murdered while he was out for a jog on a Sunday afternoon in Glen County, and the first arrest of, of um, either any of these three perpetrators. And the Arbery family were the people on the ground trying to get justice, trying to get information about what had happened. And so the idea that the murderers um, of, of, of Ahmad were trying to get leniency somehow, that they were arguing that Georgia state penitentiaries, Georgia state prisons were too dangerous for them um, to serve their time. They wanted a, what is at least uh, perceptually a, a, less, uh, a less dangerous, a less stringent federal sentencing um, for those crimes. That was just beyond the pale. And yes, the family is completely against this happening. But there's also, I think, an ego of a judge involved here. Judges like to be able to control, um, you know, how how uh, a trial goes. And um, federal judges do have a lot of leeway in order to put their own mark on on sentencing. Um, I think that um, Her Honor uh, Judge Wood uh, definitely wants to say in, in how this is going to go down because her name is going to be attached to this ruling um, for, for history. Sure. And I know that, that Greg McMichael has talked about be, fear of what will happen with other inmates when they found out not only that he murdered Arbery, but because he's a former law enforcement officer. They mentioned his declining health. He's 66 years old and depression. Do you, do you feel like Judge Wood will take much of that into account? 
No, I don't. And according to to just state statutes, uh, the the state would also have to agree to any um, flipping of these of these um, uh, prison sentences. You know, is is just standard procedure. State sentences get served first, and then uh, crimes related and convicted um, in federal court would be. Uh, would be uh, served secondary. And there's no indication that the state prosecution teams or anyone at the state level of government would like to offer the McMichaels or Mr. Bryant uh, a reprieve from from their time in state prison. Chuck? You know what's interesting, and Margaret's got such a command of this story as a reporter, watching it from afar, from all the way across the state, usually defendants want out of the federal system and into the state system because particularly on drug crimes and gun charges and things like that, they're looking to get into the state system where once you get in the federal system, you got to serve all of your time. I mean, you're, once you get a federal sentence, you're pretty much going to serve that time and whatever the judge says, using the guidelines. But it's really interesting to me that very rarely do you see the the opposite scenario playing out like it is over there. At the same time, you hear the nickname Club Fed, <laughs> the, you know, this idea that it's it's maybe slightly nicer in federal prison than it is in, in the state. And, uh-huh. you know, McMichael's attorney, attorney did point out the fact that the Justice Department is investigating whether Georgia's prison system adequately protects prisoners from violence and sexual abuse, Chuck. So um, maybe that perception is changing. I think Margaret wants to say something here real quick, and I think I'm I'm going to defer to her because this is this is something she knows so well. Well, I, I think that um, Greg McMichael, the the father, uh, you know, as as you mentioned, Tamar, he is 66 years old. Uh, you know, his the, the state sentence for murder is life without the chance of parole. So he is going to end his days um, in prison. And he and his lawyer have made a calculation that a, a federal prison would be a much more comfortable way for him to spend the rest of his life. He is not a well man. He has um, a lot of health problems. In fact, that was brought up in the state trial, that he was a man who had suffered from, I believe, one, if not two, uh, minor strokes. He was a man who just despite all of the, the debilitating illnesses that he suffers from, decided on that Sunday afternoon to run into his house, get his gun, get his son, get into a truck, and drive down a young man who was doing nothing except going out for a jog that afternoon. So the intense violence that surrounds this case, I think, is something that we should not forget. Uh, they were convicted by a jury of their peers in state and federal um, trials. It was really overwhelming, the evidence against them, and the juries also uh, agreed with that. So the idea that someone who, for the first time in Georgia history, has been convicted of a hate crime is going to get somehow get, get a say in how he serves that sentence, I think that no one in either state or federal um, judicial systems here in the Southern District in coastal Georgia will go for that. 
All right. Well, thanks so much for all of your expertise on this, Margaret. And please keep us updated on how all of this goes. I want to pivot and talk about the debate over debate. Stephen, you've been closely following this saga in the Georgia Senate race uh, with Senator Warnock and Herschel Walker and when and whether and where they might be debating. You know, during the Republican primary, we had Herschel Walker saying he wouldn't debate his Republican primary rivals. He was laser focused on Senator Warnock. Well, now the general election is is here. Senator Warnock agreed to three debates. And this week, Warnock, or sorry, uh, Walker agreed to a debate in Savannah, but it's not the same one that Senator Warnock agreed to. So catch us up here. Right. So right now we have four different Georgia Senate debates, each with only one candidate saying, yes, they'll do it. Uh, a couple months ago, actually the day after the primary, Senator Warnock said, I am going to do three debates. And then in June, he said which three debates he accepted. The Atlanta Press Club in Atlanta, uh, WTOC in Savannah, it's the top TV station there, top rated TV station, and a consortium of journalism groups in Macon based out of Mercer University's Center for Collaborative Journalism. And since that time, Herschel Walker has not said he would debate. He's not said which ones he'd debate. His campaign opened the door for ways for him not to debate, saying that it's got to be fair and balanced. Uh, he said on a Fox News interview that he wanted to do it for the fans. Uh, and then finally, this week, he said he would do a debate in Savannah, but not the one that Raphael Warnock agreed to. This is with a different uh, station, uh, the Next Star Stations, which I believe Chuck is a part of. Um, and that Herschel Walker said he would do that one partially because it would be in front of a live audience um, and he believed that the format was fair and the people were fair and everything like that. But Raphael Warnock's team has said he's accepted three debates. We've done this for over a month now. This is what we're doing. So it appears we're at an impasse, but I will say the Atlanta debate and the Macon debate will move forward even if Herschel Walker does not show up. The fate of the Savannah debates remains to be seen. Chuck, you've covered your share of political debates. How do you think this shakes out? Does someone blink? You know, I don't know. Let me be clear. Stephen alluded to it. I work for a Next Star station. WRBL is one of three Next Star stations in Georgia. This was obviously these negotiations were obviously handled well over my pay grade. I, I even joke my. Uh, my general manager no commented me about a week ago when I started hearing, <laughs> hearing, hearing, hearing the rumblings of something going on. But I will say this about the Next Star debate. And Next Star has 200 TV stations in markets all across this country. Next Star does debates from California to North Carolina. And these debates are highly professional. They have great production value. They have local journalists. <laughs> that are involved in them. And I mean, and Next Star in Georgia has got a group that includes um, Fox 5 in Atlanta. And you would have Russ Spencer as one of the panelists. And I think Russ and Tina Ty Shaw from WSAV are two very well-respected journalists that were listed as the panelists. So, I mean, I don't know how this is gonna play out. Nobody does. But I will say that the Next Star debate is a legitimate debate offer by a company that puts that has put a lot of thought into this. Margaret? Yeah, I, I like most journalists, love talking about inside baseball of our own industry. Uh, I, I will 
put two things on the table here. One is that Gray Television, which is the owner of WTOC, which is where Reverend Warnock um, decided to have his debate. You know, they're actually based in Atlanta. They're also a national um, media conglomerate, but they have a, an Atlanta presence um, as their as their company headquarters. They also have a stations, um, of course, here, but also Columbus, um, Albany, and Augusta, as well as their own Atlanta station. So in terms of reach, that's probably looking pretty attractive for um, at least one of those um, Senate candidates. But at the same time, you know, debates are not really about um, entertainment value. They're supposed to be for voters who want to learn about candidates' policies. And so this is, um, as we get into this media tit for tat about two um, commercial television stations trying to decide who gets the, um, the rights over another, voters might be left out in the cold here. I mean, voters deserve to have um, more face time and more pressure put on candidates to describe what they stand for, describe what they don't stand for, and also to see, see characters, um, you know, their personalities. Uh, without um, without a whole lot of of uh, prepping and and massaging that their handlers do um, in in their own sort of in person events, so I hope that for both candidates and and their teams who might be listening in this morning that y'all work this out. Like voters voters want to hear from you. Don't leave us out in the cold. Stephen, on that note, I kind of want to ask you two kind of narrower questions and a broader question. Walk us through the calculations that Senator Warnock and Herschel Walker might be going through right now in terms of why they might want to debate and why they might not want to debate. And then let's take a step back and talk about how, in general, it feels like head-to-head debates aren't as in vogue as they used to be, or maybe are less of a requirement for political candidates than they were back in the day. Right. So the whole message of Democrats in Georgia, and especially the Raphael Warnock campaign, is that Herschel Walker is unfit to be a United States senator. They point to the plethora of controversies about Herschel's personal record, about his business record, and other things like that. When Herschel has made appearances, uh, they typically have to be uh, clarified or walked back by his campaign. He's made policy gaps about climate change and bad air in China comments about evolution, other things like that. And, you know, when he's gone out and he's like, I'm going to debate Raphael Warnock, I'm ready for it. And then the campaign puts out a statement. It's like, he is open to debate, but these things have to be met. And so the Raphael Warnock campaign believes that a debate will be the way that most Georgians see that Herschel Walker is really not fit to be in the United States Senate, because Walker's campaign has also kind of been uh, behind the scenes doing smaller events, not well publicized and things like that. But for the Herschel Walker campaign, there's not really a lot of motivation to debate because their message is the Democrats are bad, federally inflation is high, and Raphael Warnock votes with Joe Biden 96% of the time. They don't need a debate to get that message out there because that's what they're running and that they've got a lot of ads running and that's the message that they're doing at these events. So there's not really a whole lot of incentive and motivation for Herschel Walker to debate, and that's why we haven't seen him accept these. As for your broader question, uh, there is kind of a broader trend of candidates on both sides of the aisle, not just Republican candidates, largely going away from the time-tested tradition of debates and having a lot of open media events and answering a lot of questions because 
a lot of campaigns, like bad things come when you uh, invite people in and answer questions and have to stand for what you actually stand for. So more and more, they're doing an end run around and just spending a lot of money on TV and spending a lot of money on digital ads and reaching voters that way and trying to bypass the kind of uh, questioning that comes from debates and from a lot of media scrutiny on a campaign. At the same time, Chuck, there can be a real downside if the story becomes that you didn't show up at a debate as a candidate. You think of 2020, what happened at the, uh, I believe it was the Atlanta Press Club debate with uh, Senator David Perdue, who didn't show up in his debate against John Ossoff. And Ossoff had a real viral moment where he was kind of lecturing to an empty podium talking about how David Perdue is a crook. I think. And I will go back to something Margaret said, and I think she's spot on. I think voters deserve to see candidates side by side. They deserve to be able to compare them on a stage. And the debates, particularly debates that are televised statewide, offer that responsibility. And you also get uh, people like us that get to ask questions to these uh, to these candidates and try to show people who they are, what their differences are, where they agree on stuff. And, you know, I think it's really important to get them side by side. And I hope we see them side by side. But you are, you are absolutely right, Tamar. Senator Ossoff benefited. He's benefited greatly from the empty podium in, in two years ago. There's no question about it. All right. Let's get to our final break. Stick around and we'll be right back with more Political Rewind. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back with more Political Rewind. I'm Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter at the AJC, filling in for Bill Nygut. Let's jump right back into our discussion with GPB's Stephen Fowler, the current's Margaret Coker, and Chuck Williams of WRBL-TV. We have a little bit of breaking news this morning that that Stephen just posted about on his Twitter feed. Um, And I'm just going to read off your tweet, Stephen, because I'm not the most familiar with this story. But you say, breaking, Trump appointed federal judge in Atlanta finds that Georgia's statewide at-large method of electing public service commissioners violates Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Tell us a little bit more about that. So Georgia's Public Service Commission has several different districts that are drawn every 10 years, just like everything else with the redistricting. And you have to live in that district to be able to run for it and represent it. But the state as a whole votes for it. So there's a district that covers Northeast Georgia, for example, and South Georgia voters are the ones that can cast a vote for it, as well as North Georgia, West Georgia, and everything. And so the argument in the lawsuit here is that by having different districts, but having the entire state vote for who represents those districts violates the Voting Rights Act because it deprives specifically black voters from electing a candidate of their choice. Because, you know, if you draw a district that's mostly metro Atlanta, that's mostly black and mostly Democratic, but you let the uh, Republican controlled state vote that there's more Republican voters that vote, then you're never going to have 
a Democrat on the Public Service Commission or a black Democrat on the Public Service Commission. And it's a 64-page ruling, and obviously I'm uh, not reading all 64 pages of it right now because we're on the show. But the general gist is that, you know, in recent Public Service Commission elections where it was a majority Democratic area, if you had voting in that district, just in that district, there would be black Democrats on the Public Service Commission, but now there's not. And so this judge, a Trump-appointed federal judge, is saying that um, we can't do Public Service Commissioner election that way. Uh, he blocked the November ballot from including those November, uh, two Public Service Commission races previously on there. I'm not entirely sure what that's going to look like, but it's a big win for voting rights advocates and kind of, if you look at it on the surface, a common sense decision. Margaret? Margaret, you're muted. Sorry, there, um, I think this is also um, possibly a, a win for, um, for climate activists. You know, the, the PSC, for, for listeners who aren't um, familiar with, with this position, they are the, the commission who regulate our state's monopoly utility providers, and that includes Georgia Power. So everything about the, the rates that we all pay for our electricity, for our air conditioning, um, this and, and how much Georgia Power pays for uh, its own corporate decisions and how much we pay for their corporate decisions, this is a very um, powerful group of people that affect our everyday lives. So if you care about trying to increase solar power, um, if you care about increasing EV hookups across the state, if you care about your utility bills every week, this um, this this commission matters, and that's why also, uh, beyond voting rights, uh, this might be an incredibly important uh, uh, decision today. All right. Well, I look forward to reading everyone's reporting on this issue. Thank you, Stephen, for bringing this to our attention. Let's turn in the last few minutes of the show to talk about some election results from last night. Tennessee voters took to the polls in their primary, which for whatever reason is on a Thursday and not a Tuesday. I don't know if I've ever heard of that before. But, Chuck, let's start with one of the more closely watched races in um in Tennessee, which was is for Na a Nashville-based congressional district, which was heavily redrawn by the Republican majority in the state house, and it ended up booting the longtime Democratic in incumbent who ended up retiring. There was a nine-way Republican primary last night where support for Trump was a real kind of bellwether of the race. And the man who appears to have won was a, a Maury County mayor named man Andy Ogles, if I'm pronouncing that right, who was endorsed by the House Freedom Caucus and called the Biden administration a criminal enterprise and said that Biden and the Homeland Security Secretary should be impeached and then tried for treason. Um, are there any takeaways for you, Chuck? Is there anything that we should read into when it comes to Georgia, or is this simply the result of redistricting? It sounds like redistricting to me, but when you look in Georgia right now, there are two, on the statewide ballot, there are two Trump-backed candidates that are still standing. Burke Jones, obviously, running for lieutenant governor, and Herschel Walker. I mean, you can make the argument Walker has... Walker has a whole other set of support other than just the Trump support. But when you look at it, I wonder how this is going to translate into the Georgia lieutenant governor's race. Because when you look at that race right now, obviously a lot has happened with, uh, with the Fulton County grand jury and the judges ruling to essentially take 
Jones out of in, out of the Stephen can help me with this, but to take Jones out of uh, play in what's going on right now, at least for the time being, you know, you look at that. What is Bailey going to do? I mean, does he try to does he try to spend whatever money he has and attack? Jones for who he is, or does Charlie Bailey, the Democrat nominee, try to tell people who he is? I mean, he's an anti-gang prosecutor who's a tough-on-crime Democrat. He's got a message that's a, that could resonate. What does he do with whatever funds he has between now and November 8th? Stephen? I would just say, you know, as far as the Georgia angle, you have to look at the overall flavor of the balance of partisan politics in the state. In a state like Tennessee, where it's very Republican, you run the odds of having much more extreme candidates in a primary than when the primary, than when the general. With Georgia being 50-50 as it is, you're not going to see the same level of extreme candidates have a lot of success. So, you know, that's partially also why Georgia had the really the only state really bucking the trend of Trump-backed candidates because Georgia is not a state where a Trump-backed extreme election-denying candidate can expect to do well. And also, Georgia had a lot of incumbent candidates, uh, whereas this new district in Tennessee and in other places, uh, it's kind of a free-for-all. So I think you can't necessarily read too much into it beyond redistricting in Tennessee. But as far as Georgia, I mean, we're purple for the foreseeable future. So the candidate quality that shines through is going to be a lot different than much of the rest of the country. All right. Stephen Fowler getting the last word for today. I'd like to thank our guests, Margaret Coker, Stephen Fowler, Chuck Williams, and my colleague, Maya Prabhu, who called in from Las Vegas. I'd also like to thank our producers, Natalie Mendenhall, Chase McGee, and engineers Jake Cook and Victoria Evans-Cash. You can always listen to the show on the GPB News webpage or watch it on Facebook. I'm Tamar Hallerman. Thanks for joining us today and have a great rest of your Friday.